Well, welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Irena Spatsapan from uh, Systemic Capital, where she is the managing partner. We're going to be talking about Systemic Capital's approach to climate tech investment, a little about their portfolio and, you know, different perspective maybe on industrial decarbonisation than we've had in some of the recent episodes. So Irena, could I ask you, um, as a lazy podcast host, can I ask you as my guest, just to give a bit of background on you, like how have you arrived at this point in time where you are working at Systemic and, and involved in this kind of work? Yes, sure. And thanks for the thanks for inviting me, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I, as you said, I run Systemic Capital, um, which you know can be easiest explained as as a spin out from Systemic. Um, in turn, Systemic was a spin out from McKinsey, so that's sort of been the progression, uh, and all that happened in six years. Um, Systemic, which is the company I initially joined four and a half years ago. Um, was 30 people when I joined them. You know, we were sort of stuck in a little startup, uh, we workspace, um, and it's now grown to about 400 people globally. So Systemic um, is by now the world's leading pure play climate advisory firm. And the name suggests that it is really all about system change, which lots of people understand in different ways, right? And it's not easy to explain, but what we understand, what we mean by system change is that across the main pillars of the transition, which we sort of internally describe as energy, materials, and nature, right? Obviously finance cross cuts, but those are the three big ones in terms of real economy. You can't really get to a 1.5 degree world, if it's even possible by now, um, with marginal, changes to you know the so-called system 1.0 you really need to move to a system 2.0 which is often a radical rethink of how things work today and that to do that you can't you know work in the way that typically the world has always worked right which is the investors talk to lps and they invest in their own thing and, you know, and the policy guys, you know, they sort of talk between them and, you know, and they take best, 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 best cases from around the world and move on. And the corporates, you know, these working silos won't get us as far as we have to um, in, in the time limit, in the urgency that we have. So that's what we mean by system change, right? How we get to system 1.0 to 2.0 across these major pillars, and then we'll sort of go deeper in, in what we actually do. And how do we then work together with these sort of key constituents of the transition, right? The corporates, the policymakers, um, the investors, but also the NGOs who in, in the climate world, they are actually really important. And then the tech, the technological disruption, because it would be an illusion to imagine that, you know, a lot of these systems will be the way they are in 2050, because there will be so much technological disruption. And that's where my bit, right? That's what I do in, in this whole ecosystem. Um, but of the 400 people at Systemic, there are people who specialize, right? Both in a sector, in a system, the way we call it internally, and in terms of constituents. You'll have the people that come from an NGO background. You'll have people that come from a policy background. You have people that come from finance, corporates, you know, former consultants. And that's the whole point, working together so that we can move move these constituents at the same pace. And to take it a step further, right, internally we say, you know, on the consulting side, they say, but then we sort of join along is, 
the system is our client, right? Which really means if I want to get to, you know, no packaging, no single plastic usage by 2050, for example, who are the key constituents I need to bring along? Who are the pioneers, you know, the nodes who, if I shift them, given their stature, right, in this whole, in that particular space, they're going to shift the, the sector faster. Sometimes it's a corporate, so they're going to advise them one-to-one, -one, right? And they will typically work at high level with the CEOs and the sort of the, the boards. Sometimes it's an investor, right, where you say, well, actually, I want to help to shift billions into this space by explaining investors better how this space is investable. Policy often. And we then by investing into early stage as a venture capital into early stage startups, we then plug the tech disruptors into this ecosystem, right? So as the tide moves, you know, the, our early stage founders are part of the tide and they're part, you know, they're part of a broader platform that they wouldn't have access to outside of systemic, right? So that's really the unique approach to system change that we take internally. Okay. And then specifically your kind of world that you inhabit is this piece of fundraising and capital allocation uh, to really help scale up relatively early stage tech. I say relatively, that's a bit of a guess, actually. Maybe you want to map that out yes, a bit. I'll, I'll map that further. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, when you typically read, you know, the various roads, right, transformation roadmaps and stuff like that, they will typically look at technologies that are quite advanced, you know, TRL, you know, 789, right, very advanced. The reality is that the things that are going to disrupt the economy in 10, 15, 20 years are those that are maybe now in, you know, one, two, three, four, five, right? So that it's very important to look at what's going on in that space. Um, so systemic capital is a governance independent company, right? We are, we sit in the systemic office, we have cross shareholding, um, we have, you know, systemicers who are deeply involved in what we do, but fundamentally we are an independent company run separately. Um, we raise, we've always raised external capital. It was never, you know, systemic money that we invested. It was, it has always been external capital. We are now at fund two. So we started when I joined, which was 2018, early 2018. And we're now at, you know, sort of four years and then sort of, and then moved into fund two, which we closed, as I mentioned in the beginning last week. Um, so um, we invest in Series A companies. So when you look at a startup, they will typically have an idea. They will have a friends and family round. Then they will do a seed round. Then they will do a Series A round, Series B, and then and then the letters go on, right? <laughs> and, uh, until either you're sold or you IPO. Um, and we do A, occasionally we do B, very occasionally we we'll do seed. Why? Um, you know, when I joined Systemic, it was a blank piece of paper. We could have chosen to do anything. We could have chosen to invest in funds, right? We could have chosen to do lots of, or nonprofit, whatever. Um, we, Systemic had the luxury of having raised the money before we even knew what we were going to do. So when I joined, the money was there, but the strategy wasn't there. So we then sort of had to, had to do that from scratch. And I think it became clear that where we add most value, first of all, it has to be direct because you have to have that direct interaction with the founder or founders. Um, and in when you are at seed stage, you sort of have an idea. But if you know, if I help you to go and speak to the you know CEO of God knows what company, and you have nothing to sell them because it's still an idea, then I'm not going to be very helpful to you, right? Equally, 
series A, B is when you have a minimum viable product and then we can help you to commercialize it faster, right? To shorten the time it takes for these technologies to come to market. When you go beyond, you know, series C onwards, then it's a scale up. Those are different challenges, right? It's operational, you know, how do I think about, you know, becoming a 500 to 1000 people company? Who are my key roles in the company? Again, that's not us anymore. Well, systemic, you know, there are individuals who know that stuff, but systemic as an institution, is best placed in helping early stage commercialization, helping tell a better story. Because when you are at an early stage, especially when you're going after hard stuff, who you tell the story and how you tell your impact story really matters because it's also about inspiring people, right? That something is possible in a different way. Um, and those are the things where we are most useful. And that's very much Series AB. Okay. And then when you think about this, you know, all these hundreds of, thousands of uh, very early stage businesses that are you know hungry for that that kind of series a investment how are you you know segmenting them is it is are there certain types of software is it hard tech or is it certain Mm -hmm. types of issues that they're solving or are you very much led by the team or uh, tell, tell us a bit about what's that kind of filter the sieve sure. that you put, you put them through. So we are very research driven. We're very top down. That's very much the DNA, right? You know, sort of following from everything I said before. So I mentioned before, systemic is organized into energy, materials, um, nature, right? And then finance of cross cuts. Within each of those, they then follow, they then look at multiple sectors. Um, energy, we've always been a lot about so-called hard to abate sectors, right? So shipping on the on the transport side would be shipping aviation and trucking and then on the industry side it's chemicals cement steel and aluminium right that's always been like a big focus for systemic as a result it's a big focus for us too the food space and nature space has been always huge right from biodiversity um, to in you know, and carbon markets to regenerative agriculture and then now going into sort of more cultured food right that's another big space for us um, then on the material side, um, it very much started with plastics and chemicals, um, and then sort of it merged with, together with the hard to bait materials, right, the sort of common space, and then mining became another big one, right, the sort of we started looking at. Um, and so, and then you can break it into another multiple subsectors, but that's, you know, that's where we start. Unless there is deep expertise, you know, a team of 10 plus people who that's what they do year after year, we don't even bother looking at that sector. Because again, you know, as a small investment team, we don't want to be yet another VC, right, that puts a bet and, and you know, and hopes for the best. That's really not who we are, right? We want to be value-add on everything we do. So we'll look at a sec. So we, the way we explain our narrative in systemic capital, which is a little bit, you know, less high level than at systemic. So we sort of say, so we invest in companies that look after new ways of producing sustainable food and materials. Um, we then look at how people and goods are transported, how all this is financed and how we deal with externalities, right? So these are the four blocks. So if I then take it a step deeper, right? Food and materials that on the food side is regenerative agriculture, plant-based, cultured, cultured food, right? That's world. Materials is what the heart of it. So chemicals, steel, cement, aluminum. Transport, uh, hard to bait, shipping, trucking, aviation, but then also circularity, right? So there we have a whole team in Germany that they look after so-called circular mobility. How do you get rid of cars in cities? How do you, you know, eventually make uh, intermodal transport the way to go so people can really get rid of 
of, of cars, which are some of the most inefficient asset uses in the world, right? And then free up cities for other things. On the how we finance things, it's very much data, right? So we would look at how do we find better SaaS models, data platforms um, that enable fundamentally better data so that investors, corporates can make better decisions. And that's, you know, from traceability, supply chain software, physical climate risk, transition climate risk, you know, ESG sort of analytics for investors and that whole world. Um, and on the externalities, we look at two, which are very much about restoring the planet, right? One is the removal of CO2, um, not offsets. We, do, we don't really like, or, you know, we can go separate into that space, but, um, you know, I didn't mention, but before systemic, I spent... 13 years at Goldman Sachs in commodities, where I was sort of deep in uh, power, gas, and carbon. So I'm one of those dinosaurs who lived through the first day of phase one of the ETS scheme, <laughs> um, and then went through that whole, you know, fraudish disaster of the CRs and the collapse back to zero. And that makes you skeptical forever, right, about those markets. And there's lots of similarities today to what happened 12 years ago. Um, but we do look at removals a lot, especially when it's about util utilization of CO2 and methane. We love methane, hard to invest, but it's a massive, you know, it's a massive problem. And I, would, I wish there were more companies that were going after that. Um, so removals and the second bit is biodiversity. How do we restore biodiversity, which today is still a lot, um, a mix between data, better data, leveraging, you know, the sort of genomics and satellite progressions that we've done in tech, um, but also I guess we believe a lot that the conservation of nature fundamentally will be not because of you know some pseudo carbon from trees, but because because of the inherent richness that nature has, which is then you can reduce it to the smaller micro microorganisms, right? And the fact that you know these enzymes that are in nature can then be used to make the food, the chemicals, and the farm of the future. Um, so I think you know you got it that from this last based on biodiversity and food and chemicals at the beginning, we actually do a lot of biotech. Uh, and that's maybe what sets us apart from the typical climate tech funds. We do nothing about primary energy, right? Anything to do with uh, power generation, heat, right? This kind of energy efficiency, right? That's out of scope. Um, there's plenty of people that do that. And this is not what systemic is famous for, right? And that's not really the edge. Um, but we do believe that we are, you know, I, I always like somebody, I'm not sure who said that, it's certainly not my invention, but, you know, the, the, the 19th century was a century of chemistry, right? The 20th century was a century of physics. Um, this is the century of biology, right? You know, when I went to school, we learned that nature is random. And guess what? It's not random anymore because we are, you know, and it's amazing how, you know, there was the CRISPR invention last year, the alpha fold, right? Every year, the technology is advancing so fast, and this is going to have huge implications on climate, right? Then you add on that, you know, the third generation computing, once we get the COMT computer and others, because there's others, essentially you're gonna be able to do in a biological way processes that until now have had to be done on, based on fossils, right? And that's a space we very much believe in, um, and we've done plenty of investments in that space as well. So we are a team of six on the investment side, and two are biologists. That's just to share, just, just to sort of explain how much how much we believe in that space. Yeah, just how significant it's going to be in in the sort of solutions drive, and just a, a, a little more background on the on the fund and allocation. So, 
you mentioned you've just closed your second fund. Just give us a sense of the scale of those. And, and also, what, what's the average investment you're making in these areas? Mm. So on Friday, we executed the first closing. You know, when you when you close a fund, it goes into multiple closing. And the first is always the biggest pain in the neck. So Friday, we closed the first 70, 70 million. Um, and we'll do another closing of about 50 after the summer. So it will be a 200 million fund. And then if I'm one of your targets, what, what kind of range are you typically? Oh, it, it varies really, right? We can go as low as a million uh, and we can go as high as 10 for the first investment. And then we'll follow, right? Obviously we'll not follow everyone, but for the companies we have conviction, we'll follow for one or two rounds. Okay. All right. Well, let's um, kick up a gear and have a look at something that came up during our prep call. So when we were talking about um, the way you look at the world and the way you look at investments. One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was interesting, because only one other person has talked to me about this, was the fact that you were really pointing out that better data is needed throughout the supply chain, and, uh, and this is in ESG terms. So I wondered if you could just sort of map that out a little bit. Like, what's the what, what kind of data deficiencies are you seeing, and what's what's the problem with that? What what is that kind of yeah. then maybe leading to? Absolutely. So, you know, let's start maybe from what ESG data today is, right? If you are a large pension fund um, and you have an ESG fund, you will be dealing with the same data. You know, the core data that from corporates is going to be the same ones as everybody else has. You know, there's a whole industry of ESG data providers, but fundamentally, they all get their data from something called CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Product pro, pro, Program product. Where, um, which was established, I think it's now more than 15 years ago, right? Which is a nonprofit where corporates report to, and then sort of they make it public. Um, so you fundamentally deal with data once you see it about the company that is about emissions, you know, that and operations that happen at least a year before, sometimes more, right? So it's really outdated. Um, now we've obviously done lots of progress in the last three, four or five years where that so-called unstructured data is being layered on top, right? And that's where, you know, the whole industry coming on top where, you know, they're going to add uh, satellite data and, you know, weather data or data about, you know, congestion, whatever is relevant for that particular supply chain so that it's overlaid with that, anti you know, with that sort of backward looking data. But it's still very early days, right? The typical company, even if you are, you know, a large multinational company, you will know for your supply chains, right? You will know you will know maybe two two nodes behind you where you know stuff is sourced from. But largely, you know, you will have no idea who sits on your supply chains before. Um, and again, there's lots of companies that deal with that. Right? You know, some are unicorns by now, but they all rely on voluntary. You know, they will go into a data system and they will look at invoices and stuff, right? Um, which only gets you as far, right? So there's this huge need to actually get more real, first, more real-time data, and second, more granular supply chain data. The first one is so that I can accurately see what's going on and I can actually ma accurately make investment decisions, not based on what happened a year ago. And the second is because of scope three, right? The vast majority of companies have, you know, the vast majority of their emissions on scope three. And many of them have no idea what those really are, right? So it's an estimation. And then again, you know, what is my scope three is somebody else's scope one or two, right? So then you go, you go into this issue of massive double counting as well. Um, 
And in the last 24 months, 24 months, I guess, yeah, there's been a big explosion in climate tech of companies that go after so-called carbon accounting. Right, there is the watershed, the Persephone, Normative, right, and many others. Those three may be the most successful. But again, they typically they typically look at invoices. So it's not, it's look, it's amazing, right? The fact that we have these technologies that did not exist five years ago, but it's not the end of the journey, right? We have to push further and further. And then that's something that makes climate tech software, I think, harder to invest, right? Because a lot of time VCs will say, oh, you know, CapEx heavy, I'm not going to take a look because it's never going to make returns, right? And it's, you know, it's not necessarily always true. Um, I actually think that the biggest fund returners in climate have an element of CapEx intensive because those will have an enormous, we, we, could, we talk about TAM, total available market, right? Often software in climate is vertical and it's often in a space where they then have to create a market that doesn't exist yet, right? You know, physical climate risk, it didn't exist until six years ago. Um, and because it's vertical, right, it's harder in climate to imagine that you're going to have, you know, these like, you know, 50 billion climate tech companies and software, because they typically look at verticals. And so our fund, fund one and fund two will be the same. We are about 60, 70 capex light, you know, and 30, 40 capex heavy, right? If you sort of want to make, it's a very simplistic approximation. Um, and, in, you know, in fund one, we invested in companies like Zuravia, or Charm or Brimstone, who are definitely CapEx heavy. Um, but then we also have companies that are very asset light, right? And sort of based on analytics, such as Jupiter or Circular, um, TRC and things like that, right? So it's sort of, we do believe that from a portfolio location perspective, you need to have both, right? If you if you are a genuine climate tech investor, you can't stay away from CapEx, right? We're not gonna get to 1.5 degrees with software. There has to be some real stuff out there, right? That shift the needle. Um, but at the same time, software is incredibly important because the data out there is incredibly poor. So what's the shift? Like, what, what is it that you want to see? If you, if that's where we are now, that we're in a sort of like, slightly kind of early stage mad phase of approximations and, you know, age data informing in investment decisions. What, what, what are the kind of, Next steps. I think the end goal is that, you know, if you are, you know, if you're a trader, you, you see your risk real time, right? I mean, if you are a portfolio manager and you trade listed equity, you see your market to market all the time, right? You want to move to a space where, I mean, this is obviously very idealistic, but as much as possible, you want to move to a space where the CO2 is also, right? And if, you know, if a company decides that, you know, now with the whole Ukraine crisis, Obviously, next winter, they're going to open every single coal boiler that can possibly be run in Europe. It's going to be switched on. But the investors are only going to see the CO2 results a year after when they disclose to the CDP, right? And in the meantime, they each does their own approximations or, you know, some, right? So then you have to hire, you know, you have to employ these scores of analysts who do these calculations because there's not a system that gets you closer to real time. So it's... What we need then is, ideally, you need to find a Series A level company that you can invest in that's going to kind of get us over this. Yeah, but that that won't happen, I wish, but that won't happen, right? Because the reality is that it's such a complex system 
You'll have people that excel in different pockets of the system. And then eventually somebody's going to merge them, right? And I think it's still question unanswered whether that something is going to be a nonprofit like CDP or it's going to be, you know, a Bloomberg. Right? It's I the, I think the battles are out there, which of the two. But in the meantime, there is enormous opportunities to invest in those who are going to be the winners in their own space, right? Um, this is a space that until very recently was dominated by McKinsey, PwC, right? These kind of people who charge you a fortune, right? To calculate something. So the first phase is to get rid of those and digitalize and make it cheaper and faster. And then along the way, get better data, but, you know, better insights. Um, and then eventually you're going to have consolidation. So for you, though, as, as you know, as this kind of investor in early stage tech right now, what difference is it making to you? Is it about the companies you invest in or is it about the opportunity and kind of valuing the opportunity that they see? Where, where does that mismatch in, in data kind of affect you most? So when you look at an early stage company, um, so we start from a top-down approach, right? So there's really two questions that you have to answer in our case, first of all, before you go into anything else, which is, is this an exceptional founder, right? Because that's the first, you can have an amazing idea, but it's all about execution in the end of the day, right? And there's plenty of people who have great ideas, but there's very few people that can execute. And so you need an executor, a closer, you need those. Um, but you also need something that creates massive impact, right? Where we take, an, we take a top-down approach. Many climate tech VCs will then make up a story around the founder, right? We sort of, we're very research-driven, so we will top-down. And then once you answer this question, then you start asking, is this a total available market that is going to be huge, right? Or is this, even in my best scenario, right? This is a market that's going to be worth a billion in 10 years, in which case you're not going to touch it, right? Because then the, prof the revenue pool available is too small. And then you send in and then you can go into your property diligence, right? But that's what you always answer first. And in the data, I think it fundamentally comes down to, is there any proprietary thing that they have that nobody else has, right? Is there, is the barrier to entry high so that, you know, if it's a smart idea, then, you know, next year he got, you know, the founder doesn't have 20 others who are doing the same because it's such a, the moat, you know, in VC, we call it the moat. You want the moat to be, to be deep enough. Okay. So, yeah, I think, I think how this has come up in other conversations before is in two different slightly, well, I think it's all part of the same issue, but I know on a, a previous podcast, we had someone talking about that actually because the, the kind of supply chain, the deeper supply chain is sort of so opaque and you can't see, you can't really get accurate data from it, that even investments in those companies is hard to understand the, the ESG scoring of those companies, because, you know, everything that they rely on, everything that they are buying. And I think that that was the, the one time it had come up in, in the podcast that that was the content. I mean, if you look at the ESG rankings, they are all over the place, right? Um, but no large investor today is going to rely on somebody else's ranking. They do it in-house, right? And then because they do it in-house, so I think we, you know, we are past the issue of, oh, which rankings are better because they are kind of, they all have the same problems. Mm -hmm. um, but the real sort of the big money pools are looking at the data themselves, mm -hmm. right? And that's where you have so much confusion. And I think a real, 
you know, and again, you might have some amazing companies that have created a new source of data that is proprietary, but then it is so narrow that they then go to a pension fund. They're like, oh, I can look at 10 companies and like, well, come back when you've got a thousand. Okay, well, let's let's make a bit of a shift because we are in a moment going to look at two specific investments that you've made, uh, Brimstone and Charm. But before we do that, you mentioned earlier that you had come from this kind of uh, old school financing, energy finance uh, background, 13 years at Goldman Sachs in the power finance division. So we are in the middle of this early phase of massive change, massive energy transition. How, how has that time and experience influenced what you do? Well, I guess how you, how you look at what you do now. You mentioned something about there's a correlation between what the markets, what those markets were doing 13 years ago, and maybe what we're seeing in the offset world now. But what else, what else do you think you're drawing upon from that experience? I think the fact that I come from a background of real assets, right, where I spend many, many years and, you know, touring power plants and looking at gas boilers and visiting oil refineries and LNG terminals and going on ships or looking at coal, you know, I'm not scared of real assets. Right, that's the world kind of I come from. And I fully understand its complexities and I fully understand, you know, how difficult, especially, you know, the so-called first of a kind, right? You know, we VCs, we can help with the first pilot or first couple of pilots. And then the commercial bay, you know, Goldman is obviously at the very end of the queue, but there are some people who are slightly more, you know, risk, um, risk acceptant who will go and look at, you know, your third, fourth, fifth power plant plant not power plant plant but you have those one two first commercial plants we call them first of a kind that nobody wants to touch right and if you are in the us then there's some especially now with biden there's some amazing policies right and the sort of the loan program and uh, you can really go really far with the government support in europe not much right uh, historically in europe you're depending on some corporate who for whatever reason, decided that they were going to back this particular plant, right? But then typically they would, they would, they would create misery on your cap table, right? Because I mean, there's a price to pay for that, right? Um, so that's certainly a space where you have to be very, very cautious, right? Which is maybe a reason why we have never financed a hardware, you know, a heavy capex company in Europe, where maybe a, you know, with fund two now the one of the first two investments will be in that space. It's going to be in sort of in the more food space, which is CapEx heavy. Um, but there's a reason the companies in the UK, I would be a lot more wary if they were in Europe because the regulatory, the regulatory setup in Europe is so much more behind on that particular sort of food space. Um, I think it's a big loss, right? Honestly, because you look at how the whole US, Canada is similar, right? They are, the whole ecosystem is created to help startups get up, right? You need 50 million in the 100 million, we'll get there, right? I mean, even Tesla, they, they got like 300 million from the US government, right? To get where they got to at the beginning. Whereas in Europe, this horizon, this kind of funding programs, right? Are typically all geared around very large corporates, right? So if you are a startup and you need, you know, your first 50 million, you know, you've done your pilot, I need my first 50 to 100 million for my first commercial plant, good luck. Right in Europe, it's really hard because VC won't touch you by then. I mean, why should I find? Why should I use equity for a bunch of steel that is going to be useless by the time you come to your second plant? Right, because you're still learning. I want the IP. I don't want the steel. Right, and so who's going to come? Right, you know, your commercial banks won't touch it either because it's technologically unproven. 
and you're stuck. Right. So that's often how that's unfortunately the state of a lot of European technologies, right? And some have gone through, right? Especially in the battery space, Northfold. There are examples that have been successful. Um, but I'm afraid the graveyard is like enormous, right? So the kind of the, that 13 years of power finance experience kind of brings you a strong, I guess it gives you a strong risk lens, but but maybe also that grip on widgety. <laughs> challenging dirty industries yeah and what it takes you know what what it takes to build these like mm. massive pieces of infrastructure right and how you go around along the path right from vc all the way down to you know one day if you will have like billions of infrastructure it's a path it's a path that historically has always taken 15 plus years right and of course given the urgency we have hopefully it's gonna go to 10 or below right but it's not, you know, when you invest in companies like, you know, Brimstone or, I mean, Charm is a little bit different, but Brimstone, Zeravia, it's a 10-year journey, right? And as a VC investor, you have to be very cautious of that, right? Not think that you're going to have a way out in three years. Mm. Well, that's a good segue into those two. So why don't we take Brimstone first? Tell us a little bit about why, why that company? Why was it the right choice specifically for systemic capital? Yeah. And you know, where, where's it at at the moment? So Brimstone is a company based in, um, in uh, well, technically, you know, they came out of Caltech. So they are in California, though the founders are uh, in, located in different places of the US. Um, we have been looking at the cement and concrete space for a very long time. Um, and I think if you, you know, again, if you take a top-down approach, you can start with energy efficiency models, Right, so how do you use less energy, but also how do you move to a lower clinker cement so that the CO two goes down? Um, then you have all those models of um, storing, removing CO two in the curing process, right? The carbon bill, the carbon cures of the world. Then you have a carbon capture, which we don't believe in, but fine, right? It's out there as a path. And then you have the new ways of making cement, right? So these are the four pathways. So I already said the third we don't believe in, so out. Um, the curing one, we spent quite a lot of time looking at that. I have huge doubts on that. In you know, again, I'm looking at impact, right? Because it's it's it, it's in the category of marginally, marginally nice, but it's not going to turn the needle. The first is very important, you know, like efficiency, especially those are lower capex models, lower capex models, right? And um, again, Europe is going to go towards lower clinker, so that's a that's a space we like a lot. And then in the space of novel cements, you have a whole spectrum again, right? Why Brimstone? First of all, is like amazing, astonishing founders, right? They are fantastic, right? And that, as I said before, it's the most important thing. Then um, they, they're the what they produce, and I'll, you know, I can explain a little bit more how they do it. But what they produce is chemically identical to um, Portland cement. And what that's huge because typically many other things we looked at do not, right? Which means that then to commercialize that, you don't need like a whole new planning, regulatory approval, right? You can go straight in. Um, but, you know, Brimstone starts from a different premise, right? So cement today is produced, you know, you have limestone, which is put into um, a kiln and then, um, and then sort of the CO2 comes out, you have concrete, sorry, you have cement and then cement is it then added into um, the concrete together with 
aggregates and sand, right? So cement is usually about a third. And cement is the one that is CO2 intensive. So you wanna bring cement down. Um, they start not from limestone. They start from silicate rocks, which are the most frequent rocks in nature and they have no CO2, right? So you already, you've already emitted, you know, you already sort of removed that sort of CO2 from the, from the kiln process. Um, so when you treat the silicate rocks um, in the brimstone way, then there's three things that come out. Is you have this chemically identical Portland cement, which can go straight into the uh, contract construction industry into concrete. Um, you have um, another byproduct, which is identical to fly ash, right? And fly ash is another big problem in concrete because um, with with you know with closing down coal plants, we have less and less of it. Um, and so they then try to re replace it with things like slag. But that's another problem because we are closing down steel plants too, right? So uh, that's a space where people have been spending a lot of time on. And so they produce that as a byproduct. So you don't have to ship it from anywhere. It's there. And then the third one is also interesting, uh, which is a magnesium oxide, which they could then sell to, you know, the Rio Tintos of the world who could then sort of sprinkle it on their mining tilings. And that would sort of act, um, remove CO2. That's a mineralization process. So that's, so it's partly, I mean, yes, you can see in there that it's the actual core product is clearly of interest. And as you say, we actually will be having an episode soon with a really interesting disruptor that, that is going down the path of a replacement for cement that would require, you know, that kind of uh, regulatory change to allow for the use of it, whereas this doesn't. So that's, that's amazing. Exactly. And we, you know, we really looked at so many businesses and these guys really sort of stand above. Is it risky? Yes. Very risky. Yes. Right. They raised, um, I think they raised a 65 million Series A. So it was one of the bigger Series A's um, towards the end of last year. Um, they have Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a fantastic investor in North America, right, who really sort of goes, I think, you know, they don't, state in the way we explain it but they go after system change and they work in a similar way than us right i mean obviously on a much bigger scale but they also have sort of the policy angle the corporate angle um and and all that um um so yeah look the series a was closed in i think it was november or december actually no you know it's this last period has all merged in my mind it was this year it was in q1 um and um and now they will build the first pilot, um, you know, and we would hope that by 24, 25, this is something that can be commercialized in the market. You know, they're, you know, in the climate tech Bible of disasters, the one that is most prominent is Solidia in this space. Um, and I think it has really been a learning lesson, right? Um, cement is also a place where is dominate, it's an oligopoly. And so that's the additional complexity compared to other sectors. It's an oligopoly that we don't believe that it's it's been attacked on all fronts. Also because you know they're there's they're so-called poor cousins, the concrete people. Maybe the balance of power is going to move a little bit because cement is the one that is really problematic from a CO2 perspective, not concrete. Right. And so it will be interesting, right? You know, again, this whole Ukraine situation, I think it's going to delay many of the ETS um, provisions a little bit, but it's gonna happen eventually, right? And cement will become part of the ETS today, it's not, or it's an only partially. 
And the moment when you have to buy all your emissions, you know, given that the the ratio is one to one, then it's going to be a big problem, right? And if you decar if if your decarbonization is better than your neighbors, it's going to be a huge value add or value or value detractor, right? So we do think that you know the cement sector is one of the most ripe for change out there. And then charm, how does that sort of uh, compare? What what's sort of similar and different in their story? Mm completely different sector. So Charm is in the, started off in the removal space, but it's actually a steel decarbonization technology as well, right? Which we like a lot. We, as I said before, we're not the most excited about companies that are just about, you know, removing carbon and selling these credits to somebody because in, a, in the long run, you never know where that, that's going to go. Um, so Charm, you're, you're familiar with pyrolysis, you know, it's been yeah. around for 30 years. Um, and typically, if you have a pyrolysis plant that is fed on biomass somewhere, somewhere you know, in the middle of an agricultural country, um, when the harvest isn't there, you have an issue. Where's the fix that's going to come from? Um, and so, typically, those plants are kind of at the mercy of the. It's it's like a it's like a seller's market, right? You know, the sellers will dictate whatever the price is. Um, and so, I think where Charm changed that is, you know, they they sort of flipped flips the issue on its head. So it's a business innovation rather than a technology innovation. They put this paralysis on trucks and the trucks go to where the biomass is. So you can almost picture, you know, in the US, they have a whole industry where farmers rent these huge tractors during the harvest season. And then the tractors go to wherever the harvest is of a particular crop, right? So this is similar. You have these trucks that go, sometimes it's, you know, the forest of California where they have like all this sort of untreated biomass on the surface that then creates the fires. Sometimes it's some kind of corn harvest or what it might be, right? So they travel around. And then the part, the module, you know, the modular mobile pyrolysis units produce a very sticky bio oil, which the initial initial business model was to inject into unused reserves of oil and gas in the ground as a form of, of permanent removal, which then they would sell to the, you know, the Shopify of the world. Um, but they're now in discussions about using that bio oil as an input to uh, make syngas. And that syngas can then become an input into the DRI, right, the direct reduction process in steel, so that it's a replacement of fossil gas, fossil natural gas. And that's a very interesting space, right? Because in the steel industry, there's this mantra that, oh, it's got to be hydrogen, right? And it's, I'm really observing that it's, it's like a monolithic kind of, you know, single way ticket to hydrogen, that's our path. But the reality is that if you are, you know, it depends where you are, but if you are in a, if you're still planting, it's, it's in a part of the world where there's a ton of available biomass. And if you go very close to the biomass, the field, right, you might get it for free because otherwise the farmers will have to pay to get rid of it, right? Um, it might actually be an incredible locally, right, an incredible interesting path to steel decarbonization, right? And that's very much what Charm is doing, which of course in North America is, incredibly interesting, but equal in parts of Europe, uh, you have a lot of sort of this biomass availability. Um, so that's, you know, again, it follows the same trick as Brainstone, exceptional founder. Um, and I think our founders, all of them are 
that's what, you know, they wake up in the morning because this is their contribution to climate, right? It's not some funky thing where, you know, they've been doing something for 10 years and all of a sudden it's cool to paint it green, right? It's kind of the opposite of that. They are mission, mission oriented in a way, right? If you want to, if you want to call it like that. And, th and that really matters because when you are, when you are at an early stage, you'll have to pivot many times before you come to success. And if what drives you fundamentally is not the same North Star that we have, eventually you might end up doing stuff that is problematic, right? I'll give you an example, duck. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't really invest in direct air capture. I think it's the energy usage of that, it's insane. And we are many years away from this being something that the world can scale. Um, but the only single use, large scale use for duck today, it's um, the um, injection for oil, uh, EOR, enhanced oil recovery. That's a problem, right? You know, I, I cannot invest in a company as a climate tech investor that then uses that technology to, you know, to suck more oil out of the ground. So you have to be careful that, you know, again, it's a system, things, things link to each other, right? And the more you understand the complexity, you know, climate tech is not like a cool social media thing that should just come in and out, right? Everything is interconnected and you really have to understand how things fit one with another. Um, so you avoid these kind of issues and, and, you know, and, and hopefully you make superior returns because you understand, you know, the complexity is better, better than, better than others. Well, that kind of leads me quite neatly then into my kind of final main question, if you like, which is you've, you've talked about these two examples of investments you've made. You've talked about perhaps this sense that for some people investing in climate tech, it's you know, it's just another asset class. It's not something where they're looking system-wide. They're just looking at the specifics of a given company. And I'm wondering if we come into this final question, whether that is maybe one of the blockers that you're seeing to industrials, sorry, the industrial emission tech system really gaining the scale that it mm. needs. And if not that, then, then what? So maybe if I clarify that question, you know, what, what are the blockers or bottlenecks that you're seeing? What, what worries you at the moment? There's clearly rafts of opportunities out there so many companies that you have positive you know intent and interest in but there must be some concern about sort of the, the potential blockers or, or things that could slow down the transition mm. what do you think they are right now do you know what is my biggest worry my biggest worry is that um within climate there are lots of sectors that are in bubble territory and my worry is that some of these bubbles get big enough so that we go back to you know the cold years of 2010 2015 16 where so much money was lost that the asset class on its own became uninvestable right that's my worry that there's too much money that goes into the wrong places they lost right i think it's, it's so different, right? If you look at climate tech 1.0 in, you know, I guess the burst happening after the financial crisis, it was really all about fuel cells and alternative solar panels, right? That's really what it was. So it was nowhere near as diverse as it is now. So we are much more diversified now. But there are some bubbles that are very significant, right? And again, I'm, you know, there is way more money now than, you know, than, than there was back then. Um, 
look, you know, capital chooses to invest in the things that they that they want, right? You know, there is, I'm not going to name the bubbles, but, uh, you know, I can think about three or four very distinct bubbles where you get to a stage where you don't understand why investors are putting money they are, the valuations that they are. So all I can do is stay out of those, um, hoping that when the bubble bursts, it's not going to have an impact on the sector as a whole, right? Because really the last thing the world needs is that we go into another cold winter where, oh, you don't touch that because, you know, it's the, it's, it, it's not, it doesn't make money. You really, that's the, that's the last thing the world needs. Mm. Well, then with that in mind, I'll, I'll ask you to give maybe a closing comment or call to action, if you like. So if you're, imagine you've got a, you know, sparky disruptor, tech founder listening to this and you've also got you know a someone that's worked their career through one of the harder to abate sectors but is also committed to decarbonization like what's your call to action to those two groups or what's the the comment that you would make mm. to them for the first one is to be very realistic right as a founder um unfortunately it's a very small very small subsegment of founders who VCs will found, fund, right? Um, you know, I, I think a very good example is there's lots of people, you know, we check, you know, it's, it's an expression again, right? We sell jet kerosene. You might be very happy to go with petrol, right? It's a choice. VCs will push you to do things that you don't have to, right? So that's the first. And if you are a founder, you have to be very cautious about which choice you do. Right, because there's a particular person that can take the jet kerosene and not the other, right? Because it, it comes with with particular amounts of stress. Um, for the industry, look, if you are part of a large corporate, in the end of the day, you are, you know, you can't necessarily decide your destiny, right? You're part of a part of an administration, and then you do, you know. So of course, you have to push the boundary as far as you know as as much as you possibly can. But I think, you know, I, I one of our companies, Cool Planet, you know, used to used to struggle with, you know, these sort of engineers in the boiler rooms who wouldn't, um, wouldn't care about, you know, following their indications about, about energy efficiency. And then they would organize a fair at the weekend where they'll come, you know, with their husband, you know, with their wives or husbands and children and tell them, this is your contribution to climate change. This is what you can do. It's a pain in the neck, but this is what you can do, right? So I think, again, we all somehow, you know, revert to the idea that, oh, the state will do it, somebody above me will do it, right? But often these are decisions that are down to each of us, right? And it's not dissimilar if you are in a big corporate where, you know, if for the sake of climate, you have to do something really painful, but maybe it's worth doing, right? Because that's your contribution. Yeah, well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for giving me your time, Irina. I mean, um, really feel it's been a really interesting conversation. And I, Definitely look forward to hearing more from Brimstone and Charm, brackets, maybe getting them on the podcast. Um, but thanks for talking us through, uh, yeah, your perspective and your view on this world. Pleasure. Thank you much for having me again. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.